0: Let's to the Word of God. Now, this is taking place in the room the, from last week. The two men walking to Emmaus, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, come back and tell everybody they've seen the risen Lord. So the narrative picks up there. Verse 36. And while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace Be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, why are you frightened? And why do you doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. For when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and yet for all their joy, they were still disbelieving and wondering. And he said to them, have you anything to eat? May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen surprises does anyone really like them I, I, having had uh, started my career as a youth worker and having raised four sons i'm not big on surprises right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, i remember being at a uh, we were having a, a board meeting at a church i was a part of and uh, one of our members was turning a hundred so we were going to have a big celebration And a couple of the deacons thought it would be a good idea to do a surprise party for this member. And I had one deacon who long ago lost every filter she'd ever had. And she goes, yeah, that's a great idea. We can have a birthday party and a funeral at the same time. (laughs) But, you know, genuine surprise opens us up to Joy and wonder, right? The wonders of life. John O'Donohue says this, A child lives in the neighborhood of wonder, where innocence keeps mystery playful. Each new event and encounter is all-absorbing. No overall perspective on life is available. The child lives in the house of discovery. Uh, What a beautiful idea to live in the house of discovery. And I think part of when Jesus says we must come as a child, I think this is part of what's behind that. Because not only can children encounter a world of discovery, but those who who are open to God, the joy of surprise can be there as well. And I think one of the many indications that we live in a spiritually dead age, we, we live in an age of spiritual desert, is how popular horror movies are and scary movies. Now, you know, we all maybe like them a little bit. I'm not a big fan of them, right? But there's a certain stage of life when we like to go see the monster films and things like that. But I think one of the reasons that horror movies and slasher films and horrific terrorizing films are mainstream in entertainment in 2023, particularly among teens and young adults, is that it's an artificial factory for surprise. It's an artificial way to manage anxiety. But it literally and figuratively keeps one in a dark room, right? Right? Easter offers us an opportunity to break into the light. But we begin this story with them being startled and terrified. Uh, The the Greek there is very intensive, right? They're scared to death. And to Jesus, who I sometimes often ask very, I think, bad questions, this is one of them. He goes, why are you frightened? And why are you doubt?" Well, because you were dead and you just appeared in the middle of the room. That's why we're frightened. That doesn't something you don't know. (laughs) We're terrified because we're not sure what's going on here. I think it's pretty obvious. It is a good question for all of us, though, uh, in a more general way. What are you frightened of? What fears rule your, your life? I mean, isn't that part of the darkness around our country right now, the role fear plays? It generally should not be dangerous to pull into the wrong driveway or knock on the wrong door, right? But that's just the most recent example of a society that under the delusion of certain fears has actually made our country so much less safe. <clears throat> but there are other fears, right? We, we're, it's easy to look at what drives other people, right? But what are the fears that keep you in captivity? And what are your doubts about? Doubts, I think, are a very important part of faith, right? The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is indifference. But, you know, we talked about, see, I mentioned C.S. Lewis in in the talk. C.S. Lewis's doubts about the faith were actually built on a number of traumas and a whole prejudice of the early part of the 20th century, an intellectual prejudice that really wasn't founded. And so there are doubts, we can have doubts that are not really helpful, right? Doubts have replaced the work that we need to deal with trauma, Doubts that are just part of an intellectual laziness that also pervades our time. So Jesus says, okay, what are you really afraid of? What are you really doubting? Why is it that you're having trouble believing what your eyes are seeing? He's saying to them. But he says, look at my hands and my feet. See that it's me. I think Luke gets this from John. This is You can tell that Luke has some of the same sources as John does. And he generalizes the story in John. Remember in John, it's about Thomas, Thomas who doubted. But he's saying, here, this is me, look. All right, yeah, it was really me who got killed. There are scars there. And again, verse 40, yet for all their joy, they were still disbelieving and wondering. I mentioned C.S. Lewis's autobiography was called Surprised by Joy. And it actually is from a William Wadsworth poem it's a very sad poem. It says he was surprised, the opening line, surprised by joy and patient as the wind. But then he realizes the person he wants to share this joy with no longer is alive. Wadsworth lost both a son and a daughter. And his poem is a poem of grief. But surprised by joy is also part of the way that God encounters us. C.S. Lewis says, all joy reminds us it's never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Joy is not something you manufacture. Joy is something that comes in response to something that makes us long for something else. Now, Jesus is trying to convince them that he's not a ghost. He says, give me something to eat. And they give him broiled fish. I mean, is that the best you could do? I mean, the guy just was killed and crucified and rose from the dead. And all they've got is broiled fish. Jesus, every time, there's about three times that Jesus asks for something for himself. And it never turns out well, right? He never gets, he never, he asks them to stay awake and they fall asleep. He asks the woman as well for a drink of water. She never does give him the drink of water. And here he gets broiled fish of all the things you could get. And again, this is part of the weirdness, if you would, of the resurrection. There's a continuity, right? Okay, they eventually do recognize him. There's scars. He can eat a piece of fish, but remember, he just appears and he disappears. Okay. That's weird. That doesn't really happen. I think it's part of trying to tell us a little bit about what the resurrected body is. What the life afterwards is. The Bible doesn't talk much about heaven. It's, It's almost totally mute in the Hebrew scriptures. And the kingdom of heaven is talked about, but it's not really described. And I do think the glimpses that we get of what the life to come is, is there is a continuity of self. We're not Eastern religions. We don't just drop into the big... You know, cosmic pool of being. But it's not the great fishing hole in the sky either, right? There's a sense where there's something so radically different about the life to come that words aren't very adequate to describe it. And I think that's part of what's going on here. Let's read the text. Let's go on in the text. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. By the way, probably the psalm that uh, we had read this morning is from the Passover liturgy. So this is probably one of the psalms Jesus is talking about. Okay? And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning with Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you have clothed with power from on high. Now, part of the end of this passage is a shorthand. I don't know if Luke is running out of scroll or whatever, but he's going to write a second volume, which is the book of Acts. So there's a lot of summary statements here. But part of the summary statement we have here is the early message of of the followers of Jesus. The earliest followers of Jesus were Jews who had to make sense of both a crucified Messiah and a resurrection that only happened for one person. Messiah wasn't supposed to get themselves killed and the resurrection was supposed to be uh, for everyone, or at least for the elect in, in the Judaism of that day. Also, what makes this even more poignant, the first readers of this gospel are living in the maybe the decade after that Jerusalem had been destroyed and the temple had been destroyed, a million people massacred. So there's a, there's, a very, there's a much more poignant memory here connected with this text. And he sends them out. He says, here's what the message is, a new way of looking at the Hebrew scriptures through the eyes of a resurrected and crucified Messiah, and that you're supposed to go out and share this message. Your witnesses, your martyrs is really what the Greek word is. Your martyrs, your witnesses to the crucified living one. It is a surprise word of judgment and a word of grace at the same time. I think it's a reenacting of this idea of the day of all, the days of wonder, those those days of penitence uh, during the high holy days in, in Judaism. And and it's the messages of repentance and forgiveness. But these days of all are for all times. Every day is to be an opportunity to engage in the cycle of repentance and forgiveness, of literally of crucifixion and resurrection. You see, the crucifixion and resurrection also represents the spiritual process of dying to what's old in us and being risen to new life. It's really what the whole baptismal act is, right? It's a burying and a raising up of Jesus. And the new life begins now. That's what the message is. The crucified one is alive. And you have an opportunity to be alive in a surprising way. You have an opportunity to be set free from your guilt and your fears and your sin. I know we're going through a time of reappraising literature and Flannery O'Connor, I I love Flannery O'Connor. I understand why some people struggle with her works and there are many of her short stories I would not do a public reading of, okay? For obvious reasons if you know Flannery O'Connor. But frankly, Flannery O'Connor was someone who was writing about faith in a post-faith world. In the macabre, if you would, of her writings or the Southern Gothic as it's often called, is a shock to a, a culture and a world that is so accustomed to death, and where faith has become a foreign thing. And one of my favorite stories of hers is *The River*. And it starts out with a a couple of affluence. The wife is is obviously a drunk in the story. And the parents don't really care about this child. The only one who cares about this child is their African-American housekeeper. At one point, the story opens where they put, a, he put, they put his coat on him. They don't even bother to put his coat on right. And the mother says, he ain't fixed right. And a loud voice from the hall says, well, for Christ's sake, fix him. What the father says. So... The housekeeper is is driven with pity for this boy, and she loves this child. So she takes him with her to a revival meeting at the river. I don't know if you, you may not; those may not happen too much in Vermont. But as a child, I was taken to a, a revival meeting by a river, and they are apocalyptic events. I'll tell you that anyway. And there's this powerful scene where where the, the housekeeper holds the boy up to the preacher and says, this boy needs help. This boy needs loving. This boy needs heal- healing. And the preacher takes the boy in his arms. And the boy makes a joke. And it says, Flanagan O'Connor says, because everything in his family was a joke. And the preacher shakes him and says, this isn't funny, boy. And then he dunks him in the river. He asks him if he wants to be baptized. And he says this. You didn't even count before, but you count now. You weren't anybody, but now you're somebody. See, that's the resurrection message, right? That's the message of repentance and forgiveness. It's not something you achieve on your own, right? But in the death and resurrection of Christ, our old can be taken away and, and we count to God. Now they go outside of town into Bethany. And Jesus ascends. This is just a short version of the ascension, which you think a day couldn't get any weirder, but it just did, right? In in the book, uh, in, in here in the last chapter of Luke. But this idea of the ascension is, is a, an important one. It means that Jesus is somewhere. He's not just some sort of mystical cosmic force out there, but that Jesus is with God. And when Jesus goes to God, Jesus takes us with him. we are incorporated into the body of the Messiah which incorporates us into the body of God it's a powerful idea and it's also this idea that um, that opens up the door for the Holy Spirit which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks John Donne, who I think is one of the greatest English poets of all time wrote a poem about the ascension and he goes a strong ram which has battered heaven for me this idea of it that Jesus batters heaven for me, mild lamb of which blood has marked the path. Again, that's part of the power and irony of the resurrection, right? For there to be resurrection, there has to be death, right? Old stuff has to go away. To matter, we have to change. To be open to the surprise of God, we have to be set free from the fears that bind us. Easter is not a spring holiday that reenacts the cycles of nature. There's something much more profound going on there. Easter is a promise that you can be set free from your guilt, from your fears. But more than that, you can be made alive with the very life of God. In a world of darkness and death, the light has risen. And you can walk into that light and be surprised by what that light can do. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to join with me in Christ our Passover. It's written in the Bible. By the way, this is a very old prayer, probably from the fourth or fifth century. Hallelujah together. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the Lebanon bread of sincerity and truth. Alleluia. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him.